I'm talking to Chuck Tryon about his book, On Demand Culture, Digital Delivery and the Future of Movies. Now, Chuck, I thought we could start with a question about whether or not cinephiles should be particularly happy about the amount of films and the variety of films that are available to them today and what's going on in terms of digital delivery? Or do you think they ought to be concerned about where we're headed and what movies mean to us today? What do you think? Um, I have kind of grown increasingly concerned, even even more so since the book came out. I think when it came out, I was kind of cautiously optimistic, somewhere between there and ambivalent. But I think the the worst impulses I've, I've seen, I think, have come into fruition. There was a, I believe, Newsweek article that came out about a week ago that was talking about the ways in which Netflix seems to be contributing to the death of classical Hollywood film. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's too simplistic to blame one corporation for that. But, uh, you know, what we're seeing is that uh, streaming catalogs are becoming increasingly expensive. And if, if people are choosing Netflix as their primary source for accessing home entertainment, and many of them are not getting the DVD package, then it's becoming increasingly less likely that they will encounter classical Hollywood films or, you know, even older Hollywood films from even like the 1980s and 90s. So in that sense, I think the traditional cinephile probably uh, is seeing fewer and fewer choices out there. Um, In other ways, of course, there's probably more access to certain types of films, but um, I think on the whole, uh, we're we're really losing a lot, especially for someone who is wanting to discover these films. It seems like Hollywood is is doing quite well on Netflix. I mean, I know a lot of the a lot of the main attractions to subscribing to a service like like Netflix is the Hollywood roster of sometimes new films like the Marvel stuff that I, I guess may be leaving Netflix, I've heard. But it seems that Hollywood has jumped on this. And so do you see it continuing to continuing to take away from traditional uh, income sources? Or do you think Hollywood is actually just doing quite well in terms of at least making money on this? I, you know, I, Hollywood is notoriously evasive when it comes to their their true economics. Uh, you know, they're very creative in terms of their accounting. So I, I have a little bit of a hard time judging, but I, I do get the impression that DVD sales are continuing to plummet, and I include Blu-ray within that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they are having to seek out other sources of revenue and and certainly streaming is one of them uh you know what we're seeing with marvel as part of the disney empire is that it, it looks like disney is going to create their own standalone app that will probably cost about five to ten dollars a month depending on where they decide to price it and so you know will people with children or people who are fans of marvel follow disney will they cancel netflix that that becomes kind of a big question for me. And, you know, as of right now, it, it is nice. I have a four-year-old daughter and we can flip on Netflix and she can watch Moana over and over and over again or whatever Disney film happens to capture her interest. So we're that perfect example where we follow Disney to their new app in a year or two. And I think some people are going to make choices that that's one app too many. Or, you know, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out 
in terms of people making choices, um, in, in terms of this new, what seems like mostly an a la carte economy, as more and more people cut the cord, they're going to have to piecemeal decide, okay, what apps or what subscriptions are worth my money. And, and that's, that's going to be interesting to follow. Yeah. And in terms of the culture industry, if we can approach it from a sort of Adorno perspective, it seemed, at least uh, with classical cinema, the Hollywood studios had a lot of power because they would basically pretty much dictate what would come out into theaters and people would have a choice of the Western or the action or the romance or what have you. And so they could sort of dictate who were the stars, what we should be watching, or at least in mainstream cinema. And then the internet seemed to take that all away and open it up to everybody. And we have the YouTube generation. And so it seemed to be very, very democratic, at least according to the best of readings. But now it seems, from what you've just said as well, with Disney opening up their own, Netflix, Amazon, all of these competing studios, I guess if we can call Amazon and uh, and these and Netflix pretty much taking over the role of studios or at least competing with that is the streaming service that we see and the future that the streaming services seem to be going in is it more or less democratic in terms of giving us choice what do you think in some ways i think it's or in many ways i actually think it's less democratic you know i think on the peripheries and on the margins there are going to be some do-it-yourself filmmakers who through either an incredibly creative project or an incredibly sophisticated crowdfunding or crowdsourcing campaign are going to break through. But in in many ways, I think what we're seeing is almost a reconsolidation of fairly vertically integrated system where, um, you know, it's not just Disney, but I think uh, Warner and some other companies have been eyeing creating apps or placing control over more of their content or locking it in. And, you know, I think that's what Ultraviolet tried to be and i don't i don't think it's quite gotten there if if it's even anywhere close but you know obviously amazon netflix hulu are now all producers and distributors and in a sense you know in the job of exhibition they're kind of locking in content um you know they might create some fan contests to incorporate fan involvement in in terms of selecting what shows get produced. But I I kind of feel like Amazon knew going in that shows like Transparent um, were were going to get produced. But yeah, I I kind of feel like it's getting less democratic in in certain ways. And that's that's another certain certainly another cause for concern. In your book, On Demand Culture, you, you take a few different approaches. You talk about how, as media scholars, we need to not just be concerned solely with the textual artifacts of the film itself themselves, but also with the distribution. How, when you're writing and when you're researching this, how do you weigh a sort of balance between thinking about distribution, political economy, as well as thinking about what the films themselves have to say and, and the kinds of representations we see in individual films? That's a really difficult but, you know, important question. And and I think to some extent, you know, because there's so much textual scholarship out there, especially in on-demand culture, I tended to weigh the issues of distribution much more heavily because I, I felt like there was very little focusing on that. But at the same time, you know, I, I think the, all of those categories and questions are are somewhat inseparable. And so the the content of the kind of 
paratextual materials to use Jonathan Gray's phrase from the, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, from his paratext book, he's, he's talked a lot about that and how even things like the content of a trailer might shape the reception of it and might shape the meanings that audiences glean from watching the movie. And um, he has this wonderful example of Sweet Hereafter, the uh, Adam McGowan film, and the Canadian and American trailers were vastly different. And uh, some of that, I think, had to do with Canadian audiences' familiarity with the Goyen. But, um, you know, I, I think within the context of what I'm talking about in terms of distribution, you know, some aspects of that certainly have the crowdfunding campaigns that come with them or the promotional campaigns that, you know, Henry Jenkins and Ivan Asquith and others have talked about or even participated in. And, and that shapes reception. So, you know, one really interesting case study that I think came after on-demand culture was the Veronica Mars um, crowdfunding campaign. And, um, you know, there was a lot of pushback because it, it seemed like it was going against the true spirit of crowdfunding, which was to provide outsiders with an opportunity. But at the same time, you know, the campaign itself was beautifully orchestrated to reconnect fans with with those characters and, and to create this seamless universe. So, you know, I, I think they're hard to separate and kind of functions on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, a lot of people, you know, I think felt like they had a little bit more control over the media ecosystem by contributing to the Veronica Mars campaign. And I, you know, I don't want to devalue that experience or that sense that people had that they, they were able to have some autonomy in choosing what they watched. What I've heard is you can, as a director, particularly as a known entity, a lot of these places are saying, here's 5 million to shoot a show or something, do what you will. So it seems like a really great artistic uh, avenue for these directors. On the other hand, if you're thinking about the filter bubble and the people who are being being shown basically, if you like this, then you should like this, the, these kinds of algorithms, then it seems like they're never going to expand beyond their sort of uh, what they know or their horizons that currently exist. So it seems like there's a big play between incredible artistic possibilities online through distribution and through production, but also these filter bubbles where we're getting the same thing. You know, if you like this action star, then you'll like this other movie by this action star. So how do we, how do we negotiate that? How do we read that? Um, well, you know, in my book that I've written since on demand culture, political TV, you know, I became very interested in how there was this filter bubble that existed, not just in terms of Fox News versus NBC, or MSNBC rather, uh, but also in terms of what kinds of political entertainment shows people were watching. So, you know, the audience for 24 is obviously very different than the audience for The Daily Show with either Jon Stewart or Trevor Noah. And even, you know, even in terms of late night hosts alone, they're, they're, kind of filter bubbles that, that exist. And, and that, that plays out as well in, you know, Netflix and other content, obviously. And, and I think that, uh, you know, to some extent, people are still flocking to shows that, that reinforce their values or their cultures in which they are embedded. So, you know, is someone who isn't already predisposed to kind of agree with the values of uh, The Handmaid's Tale, for example, going to watch the show and how are they going to react to it? Um, and, and yeah, so, you know, I, I think that filter bubble question is, is really becoming 
a, a big concern of mine. And, and I, I touch on that at the end of on, on demand culture, but I don't think I quite grasped how, how much that kind of sense of media fragmentation was going to feed into a broader cultural fragmentation where, you know, we're almost existing, not just in, in different factual cultures, but in different media cultures. And it's, it's a really distressing problem to me. Yeah, well, and that leads into my next question, which is it's been a few years now since on-demand culture came out. Have you seen anything to indicate that that things are changing maybe faster or slower in a different way than you anticipated when writing this? Um, you know, I think the, the pace at which DVDs were starting to appear outmoded has sort of followed the pace that I would expect. Um, I think the process of cord cutting has probably happened a little bit faster maybe than I would have predicted, especially with people's attachment to live sports. But I think a lot of the cord cutting, the substitutes for cable like Sling TV have actually come up with ways uh, for people to, to access live sports through their Sling accounts. And, you know, obviously there are things like MLB and um, uh, the NFL stuff that, that people can access without a cable prescription uh, subscription. In terms of the broader media shifts and how that affects culture, I mean, that that is more abstract and less easy to kind of define, I guess. But, I, you know, I think cord cutting definitely happened much, much faster than I would have predicted. Well, and I want to ask you about a sort of scholarly process now. When you're writing about these trends, when you're when you know that you're going to be publishing or or hoping, I guess, to be published, depending on what you're working on, then you know that it's going to take, I don't know, six months for a peer review or maybe a year or two for a book to go from, you know, in your head and on the computer to distributed, however you're, you're being published. How do you how do you deal with things that are constantly changing, like something like cord cutting and something like on-demand uh, video streaming. How do you deal with that as an academic when it's, you know, by the time your book comes out, things may already be changing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually have an anecdote about that. I think when I finished my first book, Reinventing Cinema, when I was doing my page proofs, the announcement that Hulu would be launching and, and streaming certain shows or networks that came out. And I, you know, I had that, Oh shit moment where I was like, this is happening now. And so I, I kind of begged them for a little bit of leniency in terms of playing with that, but you know, I could really only add a paragraph or so. And, and similarly with political TV, my deadline was the week of the first GOP debate involving Donald Trump. And I was like, guys, I have to watch this debate before I send this book to press. And so, but even then, you know, the challenge is how do you keep it from just seeming like a, an overly long Atlantic article that's obsolete versus, you know, something that is going to introduce principles and ideas. And I think I, I try to push that as much as possible and, and think more about again, the implications so that, you know, I'm not just kind of looking at different case studies and, and try to always take the case studies toward principles so that even if you're reading it six months or a year or two or three years later, hopefully there's still some relevance. But that's, I mean, it's, it's a really difficult balance because, you know, to get the case study right, you have to look at it in detail. And, and then, of course, something happens three months later that changes a lot of what, what you're talking about. And, and so... Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the, the principal issue is, is a huge one. 
some of the trends and some of the practices seem fairly well entrenched. Like I, I have a, in part because of our four-year-old, but in part because of how it affects the industry, I, I have a real interest in how kids' content functions within distribution and uh, children's content going back to even VHS was always one of the, the leading things that brought people to adapt, uh, you know, because parents were always eager to buy inexpensive entertainment that would kind of keep their kids occupied for an hour, hour and a half. And, and so, you know, you look at the history of VHS and it's when Disney started doing their direct-to-video sequels that VHS sales really took off and, and similarly with DVD and, and other formats. So, you know, there are some things you can trace a historical lineage and I, I think that's really important, always tying things back to previous historical practices. And that, that also, I think, helps to keep it from seeming overly focused on like what's happening this week. Yeah, and I mean, of course, that's key for scholarship is to is to not just look at the the things that are literally happening on a day to day basis, but also the principles and the theories that that help us understand that. And so, when you're approaching any of the any of these technological changes or entertainment changes, is there is there a certain theorist or a certain set of theories that you tend to approach these new events with? Is there somebody or or a group of people maybe that help you? I think, uh, you know, a lot of my research draws from kind of the, the cohort of contemporary media scholars that, that would fall under the rainbow of uh, media industry studies. I mean, one of one of my big influences, uh, Amanda Lotz and uh, her book, the, the Television, I think it's The Television Will Be Revolutionized, I think is the exact title. I have terrible memory for that. Uh, certainly Jonathan Gray, Jason Mattel. Uh, people like that, uh, Derek Compare, who, uh, you know, his rerun nation, I think, is a was a really amazing resource for me when I was writing. And then, uh, you know, he's subsequently written a lot about media and archives. And so, you know, a, a lot of a lot of that came from that cohort of scholars. And, you know, certainly I'm I'm influenced by a lot of the more traditionally mentioned Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, Benjamin, uh, you know, a lot of them may not filter down into specific citations, but obviously they're constantly hanging over everything that I, that I think about and do. Um, you know, Henry Jenkins' work on transmedia storytelling is is uh, hugely influential and, uh, you know, helped me think about textuality in some different ways and also helped me think about fan cultures and reception in, in new ways that, that I think are incredibly important. So those, I mean, I think that's probably a pretty good list. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm curious if you could say a little more about the, the specific sort of intellectual tools they give you. So when you are, when you are dealing with a, a technology or you're dealing with something that you want to write about that's happening right now, what is it that those writers give you that allows you to think better? You know, I, I think, again, uh, they are generally very attentive to linking things back to uh, media history and to always taking us away from like what's happening now. Um, you know, also thinking about issues of power, uh, ownership, uh, you know, another scholar whose work, uh, has been very influential is Jennifer Holt. Um, she's done some amazing work on the ways in which the FCC regulated television, but, you know, thinking about 
those kind of issues of policy, media policy more broadly has, has been very helpful. Henry's work, I think, you know, as much as people might be somewhat concerned about him maybe seeming too favorably inclined toward the media industries, one thing that he does, and, and you know, he's influenced by Fisk before him from Wisconsin, but is to kind of look at the ways that reception matters in terms of how people use texts and and kind of challenging the assumption that all texts were received in kind of a the the dominant meanings that that are there and and certainly you know he points to things like star trek back in the day and how that was used by uh, queer female and other audiences to imagine alternatives to kind of traditional patriarchal models. And, uh, you know, so I, I think the way that texts are used, um, you know, and you see that play out in various ways on social media to this day in terms of uh, arguments and debates on on Twitter and other social media where, where people are con- constantly contesting the, the meanings of media artifacts, whether TV shows, movies, or any, any other artifact for that matter. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about audiences, when you're teaching, have you noticed any changes, even in your own experience as a, maybe as a student, but also as a as a professor with your students? Have you noticed any changes in how they seem to approach film and movies? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, you know, I, I have now taught at several different institutions. Many of them were traditional research one institutions, and and you know, most. Academic scholars are trained in those institutions. Many of us probably attended those institutions as undergrads. So, um, you know, I, I think for me, I, I actually had kind of a default sense of that. And I've spent the last 10 years teaching at a historically black university, one with, that also coincidentally has a large military population. So, you know, I think learning about different taste cultures, how they find texts, you know, uh, like any other taste culture through word of mouth, through family, through, you know, other connections, recommendations that they might get on social media. You know, I, I think um, one one thing that does seem much more viable, though, is they, you know, they can find something that addresses their their niche. And, and in some ways, that's, that's really good. Um, and in other ways, maybe it prevents those larger cultural conversations from happening. But in general, there's probably more openness to alternative narrative structures than when I first started teaching. Uh, You know, I would teach movies like uh, Godard's Breathless or even something like Blade Runner, and it it would be really off-putting to students. And, And now I think a lot of those kind of alternative storytelling methods, including something as simple as a jump cut, uh, have become so much more ingrained as uh, means of telling stories cinematically that that people, I think, are much more prepared for them. So, you know, I, I think that's probably one of the biggest changes I've seen is, is openness to that. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the Netflix series model has, has sort of, I think, changed the way that people watch and engage as, as more and more people kind of embrace these long form stories. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. Do you see these Netflix shows and similar kinds of uh, distribution 
as long long form stories or do you see them as sort of serials because i could see how you can you can sort of approach them as both i mean in some cases people are watching these things for like 8 hours and so it's it's almost like watching an 8 hour film but in another sense there's always a sort of opening and then there's a cliffhanger and then it goes to the next one and so it does seem to me very much like a serial uh how do you how do you see this is it is it like a long film or do you analyze it like a long film or do you analyze it like TV shows? I almost feel like both are happening together. Like I, I imagine that for some of these shows, the showrunner has a vision of where he or she wants the the story to go and, and may even have some idea in mind of like what the final scene or final shot is going to be. Uh, but, you know, maybe getting us there along the way, uh, you know, certainly with House of Cards, uh, Bo Willeman uh, dramatically probably changed the narrative arc in response to the Trump presidency. And and so that that probably, I don't know if that changed his, his long-term vision of what the show is going to be, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's sort of a weird hybrid of both. You know, I'm watching Glow right now, the uh, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling series that was done by the creators of Orange is the New Black. And, you know, much of that seems to kind of fit that kind of hybrid model of, you know, trying to take us somewhere while also using these techniques of the cliffhanger or trying to keep us hooked in so we'll continue to watch subsequent episodes. So it's, it's a weird mixture that I, I think the artists themselves are still sort of figuring out and negotiating. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've found that maybe in a traditional film studies, uh, maybe a traditional film studies mentality has either not prepared you for with kind of the, the things that we're dealing with now or something that you've had to adapt since you originally studied and were trained in probably more classic style Hollywood? Um, you know, it's an interesting thing because at Purdue, uh, they didn't have a traditional film studies program. And I took a lot of cultural studies and critical theory courses that I then sort of tried to map onto the film that I was interested in, which was the, I guess, genre or super genre of time travel cinema. And um, so I, I don't have that super traditional training in film, which which I, I think sort of allowed me to be hopefully a little bit more open to alternative models. And, and then I spent three years at Georgia Tech as a postdoctoral fellow there. And a lot of stuff that we were reading as part of our postdoctoral fellowship was looking at, uh, you know, how digital media could change storytelling. So I, I think I've always kind of filled in those gaps. And so I don't, I don't know if I have a good, good answer with that because I didn't have that traditional training. Do you think then that that traditional training, the sort of traditional film school will go away or will change so much that it doesn't necessarily reflect what it once was in terms of training, I guess, new directors or new uh, crit- film critics and that kind of thing? Do you see, do you still see film programs? I know actually at my own school, we had a debate about what to call the program that we were trying to launch. And we ended up with cinematic arts because film seemed sort of antiquated because there's, there's not literally film anymore. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of sense that. I mean, I've been kind of, uh, because we're thinking about curriculum issues too, I've been kind of nosing around at other universities, and you know, it, it seems like the more common term that's coming up right now is screen studies, which, of course, excludes 
other forms of entertainment like music and things, but, but, you know, it maybe encompasses game studies and TV and film together in a way that just calling it film studies certainly does not. And even as you said, film itself, I mean, we're, we're no longer talking about a physical medium of film. It's, it's all done digitally. So, you know, calling it film maybe is even misleading. And, and, um, so yeah, I mean, I think the language we're talking about it is changing. Obviously there's been a huge or a significant decline in box office over the last few years. There was a brief uptick for avatar, but I think the, the broader trend since, um, the mid two thousands has been at least in the U S uh, a decline in box office attendance. So, what that means in terms of what people are seeking out for visual entertainment uh, is a whole nother question. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, we're we're moving more and more toward uh, broader terms. I mean, I see terms like emerging media, screen studies coming up, and I, I think that's that's becoming a more useful vocabulary. Although I, I do see incredible value in understanding the classical Hollywood model, understanding how filmmakers used that physical format. Like, you know, I love nothing more than showing my students the old Thomas Edison films. And, and it's, it's brilliant to see like him doing and or Melier or any of these old directors doing really dramatic effects, basically just using projector and a camera and a piece of film, you know? And, and so that's, something that I want to preserve and, and, you know, the historian in me wants to preserve those things, but, you know, also recognize that we're accessing these things in very different ways now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, it's like, like you're saying, it's a very dynamic situation for anybody who's studying film or cinema or screen or, or what we're calling it. In your, in your book, you have a subsection called the 3D theatrical gold rush. And you talk about some of the, the trends to basically to improve income, but also the potentially the consumer experience. A lot of these blockbuster films are now in 3D or they at least give you that 3D option. Do you see, do you see virtual reality as becoming uh, something, a part of this in either theaters or at home? Or do you see that as, as something that will sort of remain separate from what we now think of as film or cinema? Yeah, I, I have never been able to kind of get a clear sense of how VR is going to speak to things. I mean, I remember Anne Friedberg in Window Shopping talking about VR in her book that came out in the, what was it, 93, 94? There were some other writers around that time who were really interested in in that, you know, seeing the emergence of the web, seeing all these things coming into play. Uh, I had a chance to experience Facebook's uh, kind of, I don't know if it was a beta test or like an early kind of public test of VR um, when I happened to be in New York. And I didn't find myself immersed. And, you know, James Cameron talks about this tension between like immersion in the film and, and kind of seeing the the mechanisms of creating the spectacle or experiencing the film as a spectacle. And, you know, when I was doing the the Facebook VR I didn't feel myself immersed in that world. It felt like I was looking at a movie that happened to surround me on three sides um, or four sides or whatever. I think there's still a long way to go to do that. And one of the things that obviously gets lost is if you're showing a movie in a theater where multiple people are attending, you know, 
how do you juggle those those different experiences so that it, there's a shared experience? And and so I don't, I, you know, I'm I'm having a, a difficult time imagining that. But as soon as I say that, I'm sure somebody's going to come up with a way of making a, a VR film that everyone is stunned by. But um, I, I still have the difficulty grasping that. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, like like you said, there's there was a lot of hype, I guess, about virtual reality in the 80s when computers were just starting to take off. And they really had no – there was really no possibility at that time to do the kinds of things that people were imagining. And therefore, people were really let down, I think, by – sort of like artificial intelligence as well, right? We had these great ideas and our books or our – you know, thinkers or futurists or what have you were saying all these amazing things that will happen and they didn't happen very soon or they didn't happen at all. And so a lot of people who wrote books about VR in the 80s now are almost uh, those kinds of books in some cases can be laughable about what they thought would be happening in the 90s, let alone uh, right now. So how do you, when you're writing about this kind of stuff, are you thinking about where cinema is going? How do you think about avoiding the pitfalls of trying to predict something and then looking crazy or, or outlandish? a few years later versus negating everything and then finding yourself, I guess, more of a product of the past. Do you think about that? I, I do a little bit. I mean, I certainly, I think my impulse, you know, as a critical thinker who tries to think things through at least somewhat dialectically, kind of influenced by people like Benjamin, who I think treated a lot of culture ambivalently, is to, to not make broad assumptions about where things are going. And and so, you know, in most cases, I try to be a little bit cautious uh, so that, yeah, yeah, I don't feel like 10 years later, people are kind of looking at me and perceiving what I had said as being naive. But, uh, you know, I, that being said, I haven't looked back at some of the stuff I wrote in a long time. So it may very well look that way. But yeah, I, you know, I just try to think carefully and critically about these things and, and look at somewhat multiple paths where things could go down or look carefully at some fairly narrow implications so that I'm not like overly predictive. Cause I, I think that does kind of run that risk. Now, I guess when you're writing about anything in your field, what do you, what do you feel like the purpose is generally speaking? Is it to, I don't know, is it to give people a sense of how to approach the future or how to understand contemporary uh, settings or, um, I mean, when you think of your general work, how would you classify or think about the purpose of it? Yeah. I mean, I think what I saw with both of my first books, uh, Reinventing Cinema and On Demand Culture, um, because so much of this was happening live as I was living it in terms of changing distribution platforms, all of these upheavals that, that people were recognizing as upheavals was, you know, wanting to make sense of them. And a lot of the work for both reinventing cinema and on-demand culture actually started out as blog posts. And, and I, you know, I've, my life has changed in terms of now being married and having a four-year-old. I, don't have as much time to do things like blog, but, you know, that kind of sense-making of, you know, I would have, I would probably, I guess, get out that, you know, what does this mean right now in my blog post? And then I could start to weave that into a more critical framework as, as I converted to the book. So some of it was actually for, 
either people in the industry or people, you know, who might be outside academia trying to make sense of it. And certainly some of it was, again, you know, the typical audience of grad students and professors and, and trying to kind of, again, figure, sort of figure this out, provide a language for thinking about other case studies. The on-demand culture, one of the issues I talk about was um, the perception by the industry of social media as potentially uh, harming box office. And, and I, I call that the Twitter effect. And I questioned that pretty dramatically and, and suggested that it, that effect is probably pretty negligible because there was always word of mouth. I mean, I would go to the multiplex on a Friday to see a movie at 9.30. My friend would see me at 7.30, tell me the movie sucked, and I would see something else or whatever. Um, so I think that word of mouth effect of social media is somewhat exaggerated. You know, that's one example where, you know, looking at how the industry articulates a problem and then trying to make sense of whether that is a, an apt description. So a lot of, a lot of what I do is, is sort of, uh, and a John Caldwell is a person who was an influence here, looking at how the industry makes sense of itself and then maybe sort of questioning some of those assumptions. For possible grad students or people who are maybe inside or outside of academia who are also interested in exploring this new uh, new distribution methods and just the changing the changing atmosphere that we're experiencing. What advice do you have for them? That's I mean that's a good question. I mean I think one thing that my you know my work tends to be focused broadly on like different components of the the industry and I, I think that has served me pretty well but you know some of the work that I, I see at academic conferences that really inspires me is work that's that's actually relatively tightly focused on something like the Batman franchise or on something a little bit narrower you know so that I think is helpful is is you know giving very rich examples and really diving into a, a specific textual system or you know, now there's some great work. I can't remember a lot of the specifics that focuses very heavily on Netflix as a phenomenon or as a company. Um, so that type focus can be really valuable because I think people look for that. Um, cultivating relationships with people in the media industry, and that's harder when you're at certain institutions, but, you know, my connections through SCMS with grad students at UT Austin or USC or some of these other programs. I mean, they've, they've done an excellent job of uh, developing friendships with people working in the industry and, and kind of getting a sense of what they're seeing. And, and uh, you know, I did the program at UCSB where we, we worked with Time Warner and, you know, seeing their perspective was, was actually really illuminating for some of the work that I was doing at the time. And now, I guess I'd like to know, as we kind of wrap up, where where are your sights set? What are you interested in looking at? Maybe not even this year, but into the future. Where do you where do you see some some valuable um, things that you're going to be looking at? There there seems to be a way in which I might be able to wed some of my interest in platforms and distribution and connect that more deeply to these questions of media fragmentation and how it has impacted culture and politics. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, phenomena that I saw a while back was that of the kind of 
Trump supporters and Clinton supporters, I think there were practically no television shows in each other group's mutual top 25. So if, you know, Duck Dynasty, to use a, one example, was a favorite of Trump supporters, it would not show up in even the top 25 or 30 of Clinton supporters, um, and vice versa for a show like West Wing or Handmaid's Tale or House of Cards. Um, and, and so there's, there's almost no overlap, again, not just in terms of political messaging, but cultural messaging. And, and so that is a huge interest to me. I, I really want to do something once it becomes more established what it is, I, I want to do something with the Disney app and see where that takes us and, and looking at children's content in part because I'm always looking at it because of my four-year-olds. Uh, so those those kinds of questions, I think, are, are really driving me now. I, I you know, I, I want to kind of ferret some of those ideas out a little bit further and, and figure out, you know, how platforms are, are more directly impacting culture in terms of, you know, these issues of taste and media fragmentation. Well, I know I, I look forward to seeing your work. I mean, we're dealing with such a quickly changing dynamic field that we need, we need more and more scholarship on it. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. You bet. I really enjoyed it. It's, it was uh, helpful for me to really think through some of these ideas again. So thank you very much.